Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Uh, and if you are joining us and uh, you are in Israel, we would like to wish you a happy Rosh Hashanah. Jewish New Year is today. So uh, we will talk a little bit about that and the meaning of that and maybe even some prophetic overtones to that particular uh, holiday. Uh, may your name be inscribed is the common greeting for Rosh Hashanah, because uh, according to uh, the rabbis on Rosh Hashanah, God decides who is going to live or die for another year. So how about that? Anyway, if you've got questions about Rosh Hashanah, you've got questions about biblical prophecy, you've got questions about the Bible, maybe even tough questions you've been asked about the Bible. We'd love to hear from you on the broadcast today. Uh, just get your questions to us. We've got a number of platforms where you can do that. As always, the only standard for the questions that we answer here on A Reason for All, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question. And if you're looking for an answer straight from the scriptures, we'll be happy to provide it. Joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. How can people get their questions to us, Sean? Well, if you would like to join us by email to send us your questions. Questionsforhope at gmail.com is our address. Questions is plural. F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com. Note as well, if you want the spelling of that put on screen for you, we have three online resources you can engage with us face-to-face -face on if you are otherwise not joining us on radio. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. But our website is probably the foremost of these. The website C-A-L-V-A-R-Y ChristianFellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our video player, where from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday in the U.S., we are streaming and are able to receive your questions live. If you aren't able to join us or want to know where that fits in your respective time zone, we have an ongoing countdown clock to the next broadcast where that would fit for when you're listening. Notice well, we'll have previous broadcasts playing automatically there, as well as available on archive on Facebook, uh, organized by date, and on YouTube, organized by title and topic. But note that the titles are unfolding. We won't be able to name the broadcast until your questions are sent in, so feel free to do so either by email or by our chat rooms through social media or email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and of course, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook and A Reason for Hope on YouTube. However, since we don't control when or why we're taken down from those platforms, note our website is going to be the most preferred way of engaging with you. That is, again, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Okay. Well, having said that, why don't we uh, dedicate the uh, program uh, to the Lord? Uh, would you like to pray for us? I'd be happy to, Dad. Thank you that we have the chance to not only be 
in your word and among your people, but I pray in your spirit, allow him to equip my father and I to not only speak with your words, but your voice, that your people would be given ears to hear, and not only that, but hearts also to be edified, which I ask for myself as well. Thank you that we have this privilege of not only serving you in these limited capacities, but to make these things eternally worthwhile, we ask that it would be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Rosh Hashanah, what's that all about? Yeah, big day on the Jewish calendar, uh, scripturally. Uh, For those of you wondering, it is one of the appointed feasts of the Lord given to Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, It literally means the head of of the year. Uh, We read about Rosh Hashanah in, uh, for instance, the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 23 through 25. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So uh, Rosh Hashanah, as you may know, is the Jewish New Year. It is also known as Yom Teruah, which literally means the Day of Trumpets. Uh, Again, the word means to shout or make a noise, so the holiday is marked by the blowing of the shofar or the ram's horn in Jewish synagogues around the world. Uh, In fact, uh, we have a uh, copy of this that we uh, brought back from Israel. You can see an official shofar uh, right there. Uh, Again, uh, after the destruction of the Jewish temple in uh, AD 70, uh, we are told that this feast day falls on the seventh month of uh, the Jewish calendar, and it began to be called Rosh Hashanah at that time. Uh, So again, Rosh Hashanah is significant in a number of different uh, ways. It uh, begins a 10-day period leading to Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. These 10 days are called the Days of Awe in modern Judaism. The sounding of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is like a wake-up blast. Uh, It's a sobering reminder that the time is near for the Day of Atonement. It is a call to uh, teshuva, which is repentance and turning back to the Lord. Now, these 10 days are ones of great introspection, uh, supposedly heart-searching and self-examination. The uh, sound of the shofar in the life of the Jew continues to be a call to examine one's life, to make amends uh, for those who have been wronged in the previous year, and to ask forgiveness for any vows that are broken. Uh, Again, uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, According to the rabbis, uh, Rosh Hashanah uh, is a day in which uh, an inscription of names take place. Uh, The destiny of the righteous and the unrighteous are sealed on this day. The righteous are written in the book of life. The wicked are written in the book of death. But most people won't be written into either book. They're given 10 days uh, in order to get their life together before Yom Kippur to exercise repentance and self-examination, and then their fate would be sealed. And for the sake of those listening, are any of those rabbinic traditions biblical? Uh, No. No. So these are all traditions that are associated with the day. The celebration of the day is one of the festivals and feasts where they would offer a Thanksgiving offering to the Lord, especially a note for the new year, just thanking the Lord for what they have ahead. We'll read that in the passage as well. But note that point, these uh, book of life and death inscriptions happening on this day and you having to gussy up your good deeds or do some introspection to make yourself ultimately justified before yourself is a rabbinic attempt to justify 
a problem that Judaism has faced for the last 2,000 years, and that being they no longer have a temple. They cannot offer sacrifices. So all of their sacrifices, and to their point, they would be fair in this handling, are a contrite spirit and a broken heart. From Psalm 51, yeah. So they would say that our uh, introspection and our going through our good and bad deeds and bringing our hearts humbly before the Lord suffices as our blood sacrifices. We, however, would turn to the book of Hebrews and note there's some Old Testament passages that would countermand that. But the point being made is this. Understand tradition, understand Scripture. Difference. Yeah. Uh, But as far as the book of life is concerned, that's usually a question that comes up. Is there a book of life, and is there a book of death? Well, uh, when we take a look at uh, Exodus chapter 32, the famous account of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, seeing the people of Israel involved with grievous sin, worshiping the golden calf, Uh, God uh, essentially brings an end to all of that. Aaron offers a lame excuse saying, well, I threw a bunch of gold in the fire and this this, uh, calf came out. Uh, Moses said, I will go up on the mountain. I'll make intercession for you. And so he goes before the Lord. And in the true heart of an intercessor, you got to hand it to Moses. He said, oh, if you'll forgive these people, but blot my name out of the book. In other words, he was willing to take the fall for the sin of the entire Jewish people. And and I think that really gives us an insight into a passage in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about how Moses uh, forsook Egypt, considering the sufferings of Christ greater riches than uh, the, All the pleasures, the, the, of, the pleasures Egypt. of Egypt, the passing pleasures of sin. Uh, you know, I think uh, we see that Moses really did understand what being an intercessor was all about. And uh, God uh, said, no, the one who sins against me, his name, I'm going to blot out of the book. But I will forgive these people uh, because of your intercession in this case. So this idea of a book of life and being blotted out of the book carries over even into the book of Revelation. In uh, Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis, he said this, uh, uh, he who overcomes, this is verse 5, will be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name from my Father and before his angels. Now, notice there's, there's sort of a, a default position there. To be blotted out means that your name had to be in the book of life at one point. And scholars believe, and I think there's evidence to suggest this, that since Second uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, Every individual's name is listed in the book of life until they die without making a decision to receive Christ. At that moment, their name is blotted out of the book. So this idea of the book of life and the book of death, uh, I don't think it's necessarily associated uh, with uh, Rosh Hashanah or Jewish New Year. But uh, another interesting development has happened in Israel that coincides with all this. The sounding of the shofar horn to call people to the first of those 10 days of awe, if you will. Well, there was a group of uh, Jewish individuals who went to the Temple Mount and uh, wanted to sound the shofar with them. They were greeted uh, by a group of uh, Palestinians supported by the Waqfa. That is uh, the name of the uh, group of Jordanians, uh, Jordanian-supported individuals who are given uh, care and custody over the Temple Mount area. This is what's known as the status quo uh, agreement uh, that uh, is talked about uh, between Jordan and Israel as part of their uh, peace agreement with one another. 
Well, Sean, you and I have caught the wakfa uh, in action a couple of times, being up on the Temple Mount. Uh, they're pretty unsavory people. Uh, among other things that we've seen them do is a couple holding hands was approached by a member of the wakfa and hit with a stick because they considered that an offense to the holiness of their site, according to Islam. You're not allowed to make gestures that would communicate prayer. You're not allowed to wear any sort of clothing that would expose ankles or... Uh, anything else that they would at that time deem immodest. And, of course, they would not allow any scripture other than the Quran on that place. And we also saw them at one point uh, approaching a uh, group uh, of tourists up there. Their tour guide made mention of Temple Mount, and they screamed, Not Temple Mount! Holy Sanctuary. Al-Aqsa. Yeah. Center. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they're very aggressive, very angry people. And uh, we saw uh, a couple of, uh, of uh, news bulletins about what's going on there. Inevitably, Rosh Hashanah is a, uh, a, a vortex of hatred and animosity. There are pictures of Jewish people going up to the Temple Mount, uh, surrounded on either side by uh, Muslims, particularly Muslim women who are wearing full hijab that they're Faces would be uh, covered and so on, uh, yelling and screaming and uh, and essentially insulting these people. They are paid to do that. Uh, you know, I made a comment on our Twitter site, uh, Scott R four H at Twitter .com. You want to follow us there uh, about uh, C.S. Lewis's famous remark that there is no bad man like a religious bad man. I said I would disagree with C.S. Lewis in one respect. The only thing worse than a religious bad man is a bad religious man paid to be a religious bad man. I think that's bottom of the barrel right there. I think so. it was uh, Ellie Wiesel who also said, if someone says over and over again, we're going to kill you, believe them. Yeah. So, you know, once again, we see this going on. Uh, we're told that Jewish individuals uh, were accused by the wakfa of storming the Temple Mount, trying to take it over. Uh, we see pictures of that storming, a line of Jewish people walking very respectfully up to the Temple Mount. Uh, they were greeted with uh, uh, attacks from smoke bombs, firecrackers, M-80 kind of firecrackers, those sort of things. Uh, and uh, any attempt uh, to have any kind of solemn commemoration of Rosh Hashanah uh, was definitely stirred up in that area. And prophetically, I think that's significant because we are told that uh, there is going to be no peace in Jerusalem till the Prince of Peace, Jesus, returns to bring it home. The other interesting thing about it all is the sounding of trumpets during that time, or referring to this time as the Day of Trumpets. There are some that have associated this uh, with uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that says uh, regarding the rapture of the church, uh, the uh, Lord will descend with a shout, with the trumpet of God, and the voice of an archangel, and uh, the dead in Christ will be raised, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And from that, some have surmised, because of the mention of trumpets there, uh, that this would be when the rapture would take place. Now, uh, that's an interesting theory. Like any other spiritual theory, we have to check it out according to the clear teaching of Scripture, not, you know, an inference that is made roundabout saying, oh, well, this could be it. Well, could it be it? Any day could be the day that the Lord returns. But Jesus was extremely explicit in Matthew chapter 24, saying, no man knows the day or hour of my return. 
And, you know, in the original language, in, in the Greek, uh, no man literally means no man. No one knows the day of the Lord's return. This, so you're saying a woman could know it. <laughs> no. no. This ties into what we call the doctrine of imminency. And if you read through Matthew 24 and Mark 13, uh, especially Matthew 24 and even Matthew 25, the idea of imminency, that the responsible follower of Jesus is constantly looking for his return, not trying to figure out uh, some kind of prophetic scheme that will uh, give them uh, an insight into when the day is going to come. Uh, You know, let's face it, if the Lord told us the day that it was going to come, just imagine the uh, wreck and ruin we could make of that kind of information. People would say, oh, that's great. Uh, I will wait until that particular day or the day before, and then I'll repent. And I'll go out and uh, live like H-E double hockey sticks and repent and then go to heaven. Well, first of all, if that's your attitude towards God, that you can think you can kind of game him or get over on him, uh, chances are even your repentance is probably going to be a little bit defective when it comes down to all of that. Uh, You know, secondly, if you can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and the sufferings that he went through to pay the price for your sin and think you can somehow scam him, well, I think you need to take a good hard look at the sufferings of Jesus and the price that he paid to save you, Uh, and uh, hopefully that's going to result in the kind of broken heart and uh, the kind of true repentance, uh, the turning from trusting in ourselves and our own schemes and putting our trust in God that is going to be necessary for salvation. So uh, Rosh Hashanah, if you are among our Jewish uh, watchers uh, or listeners, uh, we wish you a happy uh, head of the year, uh, and uh, we wish you blessings uh, during that time. Uh, Again, uh, what a wonderful thing it is to know that uh, God does uh, make this a memorial, a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. Uh, It's a good thing for us to remember that every day that we have is a gift from God, and we aren't really guaranteed another. So this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but turn and give your life to Jesus if you're on the outside looking in at a relationship with him. All right. Uh, starting off with your questions, got a question of the significance of the first seal judgment's weapon. In uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, one of the four living creatures, when the first seal was opened, said, Come and see, and behold, a white rider, and him he who sat on him had a—or a white horse, rather, and he who sat on him had a bow, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, a few were able to listen around uh, mid-February to our weekly Bible study going through the book of Revelation in the year 2022, we discussed the significance of the first four seal judgments and the significance therein. There's two broad views that don't just dismiss the text altogether. Uh, The first is that these seal judgments are kind of a conglomeration of the fallout of the rise of the Antichrist, that it's not just the first writer, but all four writers that describe his uh, ministry's initial, initial impact on this world. And then there's the other view that notes these are sequential, uh, basically, warm-up acts into the halfway point of the tribulation, the first of the seal judgments. I'm more inclined to meet in the middle on those two features, but when it comes to interpreting the significance of symbols, Yari, there's three rules we want to keep all of you in mind when reading any section of Scripture, not just prophecy. Right. First, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. If I look at this text and I say, 
say, okay, the lamb, who's explained in Revelation chapter 5, note that explanation here in a moment, opens a seal, and all of a sudden a guy on a white pony shows up, and he's got a bow, but he forgot his arrows, and he's going to somehow conquer the world with that. Okay, maybe, but I think there's a bit more theme here than, uh, I guess, uh, physical descriptions of somebody. If I then take a symbolic approach, this is what brings us to the second rule. If something hasn't been explained before, it's about to be. If something has been explained before, it won't be. Since the significance of a white rider is, of course, a reference to our Lord in Revelation chapter 19, he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, this white horse definitely denotes being christ like, but notice that second syllable and word, like. He appears to look like Jesus and how he comes on the scene, being a man of peace in uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 through 27, but his methods are different. And this is your question as far as the bow and what it represents. Is it false doctrine? Well, we'll get to that more in a moment. But when we're talking about what we can verify from the text itself within the book of Revelation, the reason we would say this initially would describe the rise of the Antichrist as a man of peace is because he appears to look like Jesus, but his methods are different. So that would be the first note. Jesus with a sharp two-edged sword described and defined for us in the book of Hebrews as the word of God proceeding from his mouth. That's, of course, and also a reference to Psalm chapter 2. But the point, again, still stands when we're asking the significance of the bow. Well, we do know the significance in Revelation of the horse. We do those, excuse me, we do know the significance of the rider as far as his methods in approaching this world. Right. But as far as the reason why he is described as a bow, not a sword, here's what we can know. That's what sets him apart from Jesus. Right. That's not what our Lord will return with. He right. won't be, you know, taking suggestions <laughs> at that point. Yeah. He'll be coming to rule and reign. So the question is, in his conquest with a bow, are there biblical examples, and this is the third rule, look for other uses in Scripture right. to help clarify these things. If I can't get a clear explanation of a symbol, and if I can't, you know, take this passage plainly at face value, then what else can I do? Well, I could know what I do know about this and basically use that information for sure to fill in the gaps. If, again, you take this as sequential, the Antichrist rises to power through peace, that would be fair game. But when we're told about the significance of the bow, Not a lot of use of bows in Scripture as far as prophetic literature. We'd have to kind of take this at face value. There are some that we could use, but this is just for the sake of more information. What do we know about the Antichrist rise to power, and then how would that symbol fit into it? Well, uh, again, he is going to rise to power through uh, peace, deception, intrigue. Uh, He is going to be an individual that is going to present himself as a man of peace, and people will uh, look upon him and uh, feel like there is no way to resist him. Revelation 13 says the key uh, point in the rise of the Antichrist is going to be him receiving a mortal head wound with a sword that is going to be miraculously healed. At that point, the whole world will follow the beast. 
All right. So if that is something we can know, not just inside the book, but you also mentioned outside of it, Israel's told that they're going to make a covenant with death and that two-thirds of them will die as a result of uh, the prophecy in Zechariah. We can talk about the prophecy in throughout the book of Daniel, especially chapters 9 through 11, where the significance of this cruel king of the north is described in him first coming through intrigue, right? especially a uh, quote in that, Yari, and you can read the whole chapter on your own time. But all of these things are meant to emphasize that same point. If we ask the question, what is the significance of the bow? Well, it could be false doctrine, as you said, Yari, but I don't know. So color me uh, yellow if you want, but I try not to make inferences on the text that I can't verify. What I do know is the lack of the sword is how I know that's not Jesus. And if it's not Jesus but looks like him, what else can I conclude? Well, fitting the timeline, the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when the church is taken out of the way, he will be revealed. So I think that fits with the most data. So again, just to recap, Plain sense, makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. Not relevant in this passage, so rule number two. If it has been explained before, it won't be. If it hasn't been explained before, it's about to be. The significance of the white horse? Maybe, maybe not. Revelation 19 fills in that gap. The significance of the Antichrist fitting into these things? Not too much information as far as him rising to power through peace or through false right. doctrine or these things, but I do know Revelation not or Revelation Daniel nine through eleven, Revelation thirteen, and Zechariah eleven through thirteen all give details that would make that interpretation fit. However, we don't want to be dogmatic. So here's what we do know: that ain't Jesus, and yeah. <laughs> that's the point. Yeah, and 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 I think uh, you know taking a step beyond all of that is unwise. Uh, You know, it gets clicks and hits, but I think ultimately it's unwise. All right. A question from Ezekiel. I think the substance of his question is positive confession. Yeah, yeah. So uh, is that biblical? Well, uh, you know, I I really sympathize with the way Ezekiel has uh, phrased this question. Uh, You know, he talks about uh, the doctor giving you a diagnosis that you're going to die, uh, and then say, no, the Holy Spirit says you're going to live. Even the doctor gives your diagnosis. Don't worry about it. How do you know uh, the Holy Spirit said that? You know, but uh, we need to be positive and not worry. Well, you know, again, this is one of the keystones of what we would call the positive confession or the faith movement, uh, that uh, what you do is if the doctor says to you, well, you have this fatal disease, what you say is, no, I rebuke that. I do not accept that. Uh, I believe in, in uh, Isaiah 53, 6, uh, that uh, Jesus said, by his stripes we are healed. So I'm healed, I'm claiming my healing, and I'm going to reject any kind of negative confession, any kind of negative information that moves along those lines. You know, if, uh, say, your boss says you're fired, just say, no, I rebuke that. Uh, I rebuke the idea that this is going to cost me financially. I am going to prosper. Well, you know, here's the bottom line. Uh, you know, Jesus warned about false prophets who would come and uh, all men would speak well of them. You know, the, uh, the, the mark of false prophets, particularly we saw during the time of Jeremiah, uh, was when Jeremiah was saying, look, the Babylonians are coming. Uh, you guys have pushed the envelope too far. Open the gates, let them in. It'll go easier with you. Uh, one, especially by the name of Pashur, uh, 
uh, even uh, made uh, horns and, and said that, uh, that uh, we're going to gore the Babylonians with all of this. Uh, when Jeremiah came in with a prop, as uh, prophets would do, of a, uh, a yoke around his neck and saying, this is going to be the yoke that Babylon's going to put on us. Pashur was so enraged by all of that, he grabbed the yoke off of Jeremiah and started to beat him with it. So, uh, you know, the prophets uh, that, that prophesy these things, uh, you know, again, making these kind of claims against what God says. I think of Micaiah, the prophet, who was brought in uh, when all of the prophets of uh, Baal that Ahab had brought in were saying, oh, yeah, go up to Ramoth Gilead. You're going to be wildly successful there. Uh, God's going to gore the, uh, the Assyrians with these, uh, these horns. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, again, Micaiah's brought in. And before he's brought in, uh, the king's uh, advisors say, you know, tell the, the, the king what he wants to hear. All the other prophets are saying he's going to be victorious. You go along with them. Yeah, no, they were false prophets speaking in the name of Baal, not yeah. the Lord. Jehoshaphat, who was in alliance with Israel at the time, the northern and southern kingdoms were separate. Uh, he said, do you have a prophet of the Lord? And Ahab, being the beta that he was, said, well, he never says anything good about it. There's him. one. <laughs> I, I can't stand this guy, so they say. He said, may not the king say so, so they bring him in. And uh, Micaiah said, whatever the Lord tells me to say, I'm going to say so the first thing that comes out of Micaiah's mouth is, sure, go up to Ramoth Gilead and be victorious. And How do we know he was being sarcastic? Ahab says, how many times do I have to tell you just to tell me what the Lord says? So it's definitely tongue-in-cheek. He goes, all right, you want what the Lord says? Here's what the Lord says. I saw the Lord. There were a bunch of spirits before him. He says, who can I get to lead Ahab up to Ramoth Gilead so he can be killed there? And one came up with an idea, another came up with another, and one says, okay, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of uh, Ahab's prophet. false prophets, and uh, that will get him to go there. And he goes, go, you'll be successful. Now, that always raises a huge passel full of questions in people's minds. Did God lie to Ahab? No, he didn't lie to Ahab. He told Micaiah exactly what this vision was all about. He, the false prophets were the one lying. The fact that God didn't strike them dead but enabled them in their false prophecies would have only been a problem if Ahab was, in fact, listening to them, which he was. Yeah. But he didn't allow him to be deceived without also having not only immediate access to a godly king like Jehoshaphat, to his credit, but also a godly prophet like Micaiah, despite the sarcasm. Yeah, and Micaiah is then hauled off to the jail, and Micaiah says his parting shot, if you return in peace then the Lord has not spoken through me. Well, that's very negative, Micaiah. Well, Ahab was freaked out. He goes into battle. He dresses up just like a uh, private first class. And uh, the uh, Syrians decided their strategy was to go after the leaders. They went chasing after Jehoshaphat. He barely got away with his life. And uh, one of the Syrians shot an arrow in the, the air where it landed. He knew not where. And guess what? It hit uh, Ahab right in the the uh, vulnerable part of his armor. Uh, he bled to death and died as a result of all of that. So the bottom line is this. It's easy for a prophet, quote-unquote, to come to us and say, oh, everything's going to work out great. You just need to claim these verses, and uh, God will do that. Well, here's the problem with all of that. Uh, you know, okay, that's a theory that you can claim this verse and always have perfect health and maximum wealth. 
But what are we to make of the Apostle Paul, who three times asked God to relieve him from a uh, thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him? And the Lord said, no, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What are we to make of that? Okay, two things. Should we ask God for healing if we're struggling in a particular area? You better believe we should ask God for healing. When I went through my cancer bout, I asked God for healing constantly. But my request for healing from God was always uh, addressed with this addendum. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If, God, you can be glorified in my life through my healing, do it. If, uh, for whatever reason, I'm not healed, uh, you be glorified. Your will is good, acceptable, and perfect. I'm going to trust in you. Now, that is the faith movement. It took much more faith for me to be able to say to God, you've got a perfect purpose and a plan here, even if I can't see it. I'm going to put it in your hands. Then for me to say, okay, God, I'm going to stand on this verse and hold my breath till I turn blue and make you do it. You know, that's the problem with the faith movement. And, and here's the deal. Uh, you know, instead of praying like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done, the faith movement presumptuously, Ezekiel says, I know what God's will is. And I'm going to tell God what he needs to do in this circumstance. And I'm even going to blackmail him by saying, I've got this verse that says you're going to do this for me. And by the power of my faith, I can get you to do what I want. That's not what faith means. No. Uh, faith means trust with reason. In other words, we trust the character of God. We trust the promises of God. As we, he spoke them. We trust the word shared in context. So uh, when someone says, uh, you know, I, I'm believing God for healing, don't get me wrong. Uh, some people involved with the faith movement, I, I really admire them because they really do believe that God intervenes in life, and uh, they're looking for the Lord to move with his mighty hand and outstretched arm, and I think that's great. But it has to be hedged in by the totality of what God has to say about times where we go through a need, say, for healing, or we go through a time of trials and, and deprivation. When we come to the Lord and say, God, this is what I'd love for you to do. The Scripture says we can come boldly before the throne of grace. The word boldly uh, is really interesting in the original language. It's two words fused together. It means to say anything. I can say anything to God because he knows my heart anyway. I can come before him and say, God, please heal me from my cancer. You know I don't want to go through uh, what they have said the next five years are going to be like if uh, my cancer isn't healed. Please heal me. If you're going to use doctors to do that, if you're going to instantaneously heal me, uh, then do it. I, I can bring that before the Lord and let him know exactly how I feel. But on the other side of the coin, I also need to come in faith, believing that God has a purpose and a plan for my life, that he is going to accomplish his good, acceptable, and perfect will in my life. And so as a result of that, I can trust him. That's the best acronym for real faith I've ever heard. Forsaking all, I trust him. So, you know, I don't try to tell God his business. I tell God what's on my heart. Uh, I bring that before him because he is a loving father who will always do the right thing, and I trust him for the results. All right. And uh, once again, when we're talking about these issues, always avoid the spiritual hazard of 
holding God to promises he never actually made. Because this is also something inversely that was a stumbling block. Ezekiel had a follow-up regarding uh, his Hindu friend who seems healthy. How does that work? Well, Hindus have an immune system too. They can be prone to exercise and good dieting. They can be beneficiaries of the things that God has given us universally. And this is the whole point. When uh, Asaph was making an observation in Psalm 73, where he's wondering not just do the wicked seem to be just as good off as I am, trying to be a righteous person, they seem better off than me. Crime really does pay. And he goes through all these examples and saying they not only curse you to your face and seem to get away with it, but your people suffer as a result of these things. God, what's going on? And it ultimately comes back to his observation that he makes almost at the end of the psalm, where he says, until I saw their end. Right. And that's the key. When we're talking about the promises of God, None of us are promised a good life. None of us are even necessarily promised a hard life. But what we are promised is that this life is where eternity makes up its mind. And if we go breezing through this life with not a care for eternity, then that's ultimately going to be a poor economic investment of our time and mental effort. If, on the other hand, we look at people in this life who seem to be better off following systems that make about as much sense as a, you know, homemade soap commercial or whatever, then you can at least take that at face value and say, well, did God promise me that I'd be like them? Did promise them that they're supposed to be like me? No, God hasn't promised any of these things, so why am I thinking in these terms? We need to make sure that when we take God's word as God's word, we also don't add our words based off of whether or not we like them. Because note, who doesn't want an easier life? Who doesn't want a healthier life? Who doesn't want the kind of life that's worth living? But the key emphasis of Scripture isn't this life is where you got to get your most because it's uh, basically all that you have. This life is where we have to make decisions that will, to quote uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, echo into eternity. And the point being made is just that. When we're talking about people who reject Jesus Christ and seem quote-unquote better off, it's not because the demons of those religions are protecting them from harm, any more than people who are trying to live righteous lives and seem to be suffer are failing in their faith. They're all assumptions based off of information that just isn't there. So be careful with that. Um, question? Uh, and one other thing I want to uh, follow up with uh, that Ezekiel mentioned. He said that the, uh, the pastor that he was listening to used uh, Ahab as an example, a positive con confession, and he used Job's statement uh, saying, that the very thing I feared came upon me as a negative confession. Like and a better pastor. Okay, now uh, a couple things about that, because this comes up quite a bit. Uh, did Job, in a sense, um, write uh, his own uh, problems involved there by saying this? Well, in Job 3.25, he did say, for the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I has dreaded has happened to me. Now, if that was in Job chapter 1, that guy might have uh, a leg to stand on. But remember what's happened in Job chapters 1 and 2. Why, Sean, did Job suffer? Because he was so righteous that God bragged on him to Lucifer, Satan. As I don't know if he'd say brag, but, you know, he definitely pointed him out to Satan. Yeah, yeah he said, have you observed a man named Job? He loves righteousness, hates evil, and he not only is an example that 
really shows something of what people actually want from me. She says, well, he only likes you because you bless him so much. Yeah. I can prove that he's a mercenary. And there was a not really bargain. Note, this is poetic structure. But in this observation of poetry, a spiritual phenomena is observed as the cause of Job's suffering. What? To demonstrate his character. Did he love God for the benefits, or did he love God because he's God? And Lucifer, Satan, not knowing Job's character, but only assuming what he had seen of human nature going to and fro throughout the earth and all. So Satan can't read our minds. He completely misread Job. Yeah, he's smart, perfect in wisdom and beauty, as we read in Ezekiel uh, 28 and Isaiah 14, but the point being made is just that. Job 1 and Job 2 took place before Job 3. Job 3 explains from Job's perspective and the chapters subsequently until the end, I don't know what's happening to me. Everything horrible that I hoped wouldn't happen in life has happened. Yeah. But we realize that it was nothing Job did as far as a negative consequence. If anything, this was a positive consequence. Because, again, that prosperity teacher that I hope you're not listening to anymore seems to have forgotten that at the end of the book of Job, he not only had everything returned to him, with interest, but also the children that he lost as a result of the calamities that the enemy inflicted upon him were restored to him, and he also had the future expectation of seeing the children he lost with him when he would join fellowship with God, which he also observes in the book. Yeah, you know, I guess uh, my analysis of this, uh, Ezekiel, is is this. Uh, you know, it's easy to go to Job chapter 3 and say, oh, see, negative confession, that's why it happened to Job. Well, a couple things, just as Sean delineated. Uh, it didn't have anything to do with Job's behavior, that uh, the thing that happened to him happened to him. Eliphaz thought uh, it, it, it wasn't something that he did or didn't do here on earth that triggered all these negative things. Rather, it was his sterling character and his loyalty to God that caused him to suffer these things. And were proved as he suffered. And then, after he goes through, first of all, losing all of his possessions, uh, and then losing his health, his wife comes to him and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God, and die? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Now, here's where your faith teacher really needs to reevaluate the book of Job. In Job chapter 2 and verse 10, we are told, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, you can say an awful lot about what Job went through, but you can't say he asked for it. You can't say that it was negative confession that put Job in this place. God didn't say, oh my goodness, you know, my servant Job here, uh, I've blessed him with all of these things, but he's got this fear in his heart, so it's creating all these evil things for him. That's more like Oprah Winfrey's The Secret than anything you're going to find in the Bible. Uh, it has nothing to do with why or how Job suffered. Clearly, we can see that Job didn't sin with his lips. He didn't create his negative reality by negative confession. So, uh, you know, whenever we see one of these uh, snake oil salesmen on TV trying to sell us on this sort of thing, trying to get in our wallets inevitably by this sort of thing, just remember, uh, evaluate it by the Scripture. The Scripture says Job didn't sin with his lips. So it wasn't negative confession or even the fact that Job uh, feared the possibility of uh, negative things in life that created these things. It was rather God using these circumstances 
to show that Job had a relationship with him that brought a smile to the face of God in heaven and, and rocked the gates of hell. And that we continue to celebrate to this day, as opposed to Ahab, who, while he had positive things in his life, I think that TV preacher uh, failed to leave out the fact he died horribly, and his pagan wife and his granddaughter as well inflicted more horrors on Israel than, well, we'll uh, compare it to the person who's uh, the topic of the next question. Mac has a question about, hypothetically speaking, if Hitler had repented before committing suicide, could he have been saved, or did he have a wicked heart through and through? Was he really too far gone and lost? Uh, Mac, there's two kinds of audiences that ask these sort of questions, those who want to waste time and those who want to divert attention from the real issue. Obviously, if I'm talking to an atheist and they say, well, would you then just say, so since your God's so forgiving, that if Hitler had just prayed a prayer, that means he would have gone to heaven, that he would have gotten off Would free? a little prayer save anyone? And no. that would be an opportunity to clarify to the person who doesn't know better, or at least hopefully doesn't know and isn't just trying to be deceptive, a clarification on how salvation works, that it's not just saying words in a particular order, and it is a full understanding of exactly what has been done about sin. So we'll first start with that. The second type of person who would bring up this kind of objection is, whether intentionally or not, just trying to waste time. When we understand the nature of history and the nature of Adolf Hitler's legacy, we know he did not repent, and that was verified as a result of him being too far lost because he did not repent. Let's deal with reality. But taking a step back from the atheist perspective and saying, okay, this is a good conversation now. We're not just yeah. going off into the woodwork here. Yeah. What is ultimately the nature of our salvation? Well, let's first ask the question, is God the kind of God who goes light on justice? Well, when we note in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, or is it 621, he who knew no sin became... 521. 521. Yeah. Uh, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So who is the him that's the object of that conversation? Jesus. Now, what did Jesus do particularly in order to accomplish that. He became sin. So sin of any stripe, whether we're talking about rejection of God in your heart or the total annihilation of his people in your life, the point of emphasis is the same. You did not demonstrate God's character. And we can note from parables and so forth that there will be degrees of punishment suiting the crime as a result of and accompanying your separation from God forever, right. but that's another topic. I'm speaking to an atheist here. He's not going to get into the nature of the afterlife without uh, going on a few ADD vacations. So here's the point. How did God treat our sin? Well, in the person of Jesus, we saw just how seriously he took that issue. Right. If I were to say, what did Adolf Hitler deserve for his crimes? Well, let's just say, hypothetically, he was first put through a series of mock trials after being abandoned by his friends unjustly. Then when at those trials in a series of stages that not only laws they knew they were breaking, but he knew that they were breaking, were all done in between beating sessions to the point where he almost wasn't recognizable as a human being. Then when exchanged for someone who legitimately deserved that crime, was then brought before a Roman garrison and subjected to a series of games like Hot Hand and so forth, basically blindsiding him into oblivion, uh, putting a about a two to three inch uh, crown of thor or thorny crown basically and hammering it into their head 
while putting a purple robe on you and then tearing it off. Oh, did I forget what happened before that? He was subjected to the first stage of a Roman crucifixion. You can read this in the medical examination, verified archaeologically, biographically, and medically through William D. Edwards' work on the physical death of Jesus, where he was subjected to the treatment of a Roman lector, which was a professional torturer, and his cat of nine tails, a special nine-pronged whip, which was basically uh, strands of leather with uh, dumbbells, small weights, and animal bones or teeth put in incrementally in order to not only bruise the flesh, but also to tear it off in intervals. They would flog you to a point where we have records in Roman uh, writings, for example, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, where he noted a Roman citizen shouldn't even hear the word crucifixion. The, so, the flogging itself was known as the half-death. So the, the, the horrific suffering of Jesus. And I want to emphasize this, because when people are talking about, oh, God would just let someone off so easy, here's how God treats sin when dealt justly. After being rendered basically non-existent in your skin, and note uh, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ very much dimed, uh, diluted down the full horrors of the first stage of a Roman crucifixion and the tortures that Jesus endured. Also note that uh, we're, we're putting Hitler in this place here. Uh, that purple robe putting on his body, allowing it to sink into the uh, raw skin and exposed nerve endings, and then tearing it off, horrifying bleeding would result, not to mention the head injuries and not to mention the beatings he had already endured. Then he would be forced to carry about a 145-pound beam of wood uh, to the point of walking a mile publicly to be humiliated in this state, and so that he would be brought to the point of exhaustion if the blood loss hadn't accomplished that already. Then having your, uh, if you've ever uh, hit your funny bone, that's a uh, primary nerve close to your knees or uh, parts of your leg. It ain't funny. The median nerve is another type of those nerves. When they would nail you to the cross, it would not only extend you to the point where you couldn't breathe properly unless you were pushing up on the nail, which is why they nailed your feet to the cross, by the way, not just for torture, so you could push up and breathe, but also through the median nerve. So you got a nail driven through a funny bone in your arms. Also note this point when you would be struggling up and down on that cross, then the wrath of God is being poured out on you. While you're not only fighting for breath, you are enduring unlimited suffering. Uh, the sound that my heart made when Count Inigo slaughtered my father, to quote Princess Bride. Then, after three or so hours of that, you were finally allowed to die and subjected to a death blow, which in Jesus' biographical reports, we have multiple reports of this, had his uh, side pierced with a spear and noted that his heart had ruptured, according so, to so the So this reports. description of Jesus' sufferings, then, tells us what about the question of uh, can Hitler be saved by a little prayer? That's what Hitler deserved in God's eyes. He's not the kind of being to mince on justice. And if Jesus was willing to go through that for, as we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, those who are unworthy of it, whether it's Hitler's right. or whether it's misters like me, right. the whole point is being emphasized in that. Hitler didn't get away with anything. 
God was so gracious that he was willing to go through what Hitler and all of us deserved when we note sin. Now, this is where generally segues start taking place and saying, your God's too harsh. Oh, I'm sorry. God takes evil more seriously than we do. The point being Wait, made I thought this. the uh, initial conversation was he was too easy. Yeah, uh, this the is... The little prayer is going to save anybody. Yeah, now is, he's too harsh. <laughs> yeah, this is the metric that we know we're not talking to someone who's sincere. But notice, uh, Mac, when we're having this conversation... Either way you go, it's not coming from someone who's actually looking for an answer. It's a smokescreen. If someone doesn't understand the nature of salvation, hopefully those references that can be verified without even touching the Bible can do some good. But note, no one's going to come to a saving relationship with Jesus just because you convinced them or just because they finally understood. You know, now that I understand that uh, if God had uh, properly dealt with Hitler, that he actually got what he deserved, no, the people who object to a relationship with God or make these sort of hand-waving gestures have already made up their mind. They're just trying to make a stink or trying to humiliate you in a public setting. So the point being made is this, Mac. If that question comes up from someone who's not a Christian, it's going to lead in one of two areas, neither of which are helpful, but note they may not be the only ones listening. So at least take the time to explain what the nature of salvation is. Yeah. Not that we got away with anything, that everything we deserved was justly paid. That's the point. God deals with sin very seriously, and the only way for us to not pay the price that Hitler deserved, that all of us deserved, is that. But then if we take another step back and say, well, you're a believer, why would you be concerned about something that didn't happen? God dealt with Hitler accordingly, he'll also deal with you. That's the whole point and emphasis of this. Yeah, and, and the question usually gets phrased, oh, you just say a little prayer and you, uh, you get out of everything. Well, it's not a little prayer that saves anyone. It's the enormity of what Jesus went through to save us, as you've described. Uh, and, uh, and the only thing that I can do in light of all of that is simply receive this gift of salvation uh, as a gift, not try to earn it or deserve it or merit it. And, you know, I think an interesting question to ask somebody is say, well, you're just saying that a little prayer uh, can save anyone. And just say, well, okay, uh, what is it about the sufferings of Jesus on your behalf that you find insufficient to pay the price for your sins? And then let them talk. Yeah, yeah. and hopefully have a better conversation than the ones I've had. Um, Prayer request from Dwayne, who seems to be hurt right now when it comes to emotional or physical hurts. Pain's never fun. So uh, would you like to pray for Dwayne? Absolutely. Father, we want to bring Dwayne before you, and we thank you, Lord, uh, just for the wonder of prayer, because, Lord, you are the one who searches hearts and minds. You are the one who knows us so well that even the hairs on our head are all known and numbered by you. And so, Lord, you know exactly what's going on with Dwayne, and you know exactly what's happening in the lives of all those who might be tuning in this broadcast who need your touch and need your love and need your encouragement right now. But Lord, we specifically would ask that you would uh, come to Dwayne, lift him up, let him know, first of all, that you are with him, that you're never going to leave him and never forsake him. Let him know that you're for him. You say in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? If he didn't spare his only son, but gave, us up for his, for, gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? Uh, Lord, I, I pray that Dwayne would not only realize that you're with him uh, and for him, but that you stand ready to pour out your peace upon him, even in the midst of 
his hurts. Lord, let him cast his cares upon you because you care for him. And Lord, even as he does, uh, Lord, the beautiful promise of Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. So Lord, I pray that perfect peace would flood into Dwayne's heart. I pray that it would come alongside all those who might be hurting and struggling right now in so many different ways. Uh, Lord, you are such a wonderful, awesome God, and we thank you that you are able to bear our burdens as we cast them on you. We do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. All right, uh, we've got a few minutes before we have to sign off, so we'll be keeping an eye out for questions as they come. But uh, with all that being said, we've got one at the ready here. Um, This one, I think, fairly straightforward. The question is regarding Christians uh, needing to get married legally as opposed to um, going just going through the ceremony, so to speak. And this is specified, I don't want to lose the benefits I had of being single because of my previous marriage, the uh, uh. basically alimony payments and so forth. The concern is, again, do you have to do that? And again, would this attitude play a factor in the answer? We got about a minute. Yeah, well, uh, again, th- this question does come up. Some people, especially older people, will say, oh, if I get married, I'll lose uh, some of my Social Security benefits and so on. So can I just have a Christian marriage, a spiritual marriage, and not uh, a legal one? You know, I, I understand why economically someone might say that, but uh, we do not encourage that at Calvary Christian Fellowship for a couple of reasons. First of all, if God is calling you to be married, he is calling you not just to do it in the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of man. We are to respect those in authority over us. We are to give taxes to whom taxes, honor to whom honor, tribute to whom tribute. Uh, and so that really shouldn't enter our thinking as believers. The other thing that I would say is if you're worried about uh, making ends meet, uh, the Lord said that he is going to supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Uh, If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all the other things, the things that uh, the Gentiles, the people who don't know God, so uh, eagerly seek after are going to be added to us as well. So if you're going to make this spiritual step to get married, I would say uh, the, the best way to do this is to lift it up before the Lord, put your trust in Him, that He's going to take care of your finances as well. Where God guides, He provides. And so make sure that the Lord comes first in your marriage and you won't go wrong. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.